And please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, book of Luke, and we're in chapter 2 this morning, and really picking up uh, where we left off last week. So we're starting at verse 21 and reading on down through verse 40. If you don't have a Bible, there are some scattered uh, under the, underneath, the she- uh, underneath the seats, uh, the white Bibles, you can have those, you can borrow those, whatever you need, they're for you to use, and we also are projecting the words here on the screen as well. Uh, Luke chapter 2, starting at verse 21. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God, saying, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you are prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was, uh, her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night after night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Let's pray. Father, everything rises and falls based on your Son, Jesus. The destiny of everyone hinges on Jesus. And so, Father, I pray this morning, in light of that, that you would help us to see Jesus and savor him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's good to see you guys here on this rather warm day. All right, we're continuing our series, Seeing and Savoring Jesus, and we're going to jump into this text here in a minute, but first of all, I'm going to start with a little bit of history trivia, and I want to see how well-educated our children are. Um, So, let's see if you guys, um, first of all, I'm just going to put a picture of a guy up here and see if you know who this uh, might be. It's actually a statue. Let's see if this is working. It doesn't seem like it is, so no, I need you to go there. That slide right there. All right. Any clue, kids, as to who that historical figure, character, person might be? Now, no, you're not. You're too old. Little kids. All right. Any ideas? It's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. But good guess. It's always a good answer in the church. God, Jesus. It's not Samson either. No, no. It's not a biblical figure. 
All right, let me start giving you some clues. We'll leave the, leave the slide up there. Let me tell you some other facts. I, I'll, go ahead and give you, I'll go ahead and give you his name, and let's see if you know what he did. His name is, was Rodrigo de Tirana. Does anybody know who Rodrigo de Tirana was? Anybody? A what? American trivia. No, this is, this, all right. No, sorry. There's only one trivia question today, Mark. You can't request another question. Can't pass on this one. Rodrigo de Tirana. All right, more clues here. He was born in Seville, Spain. In 1469. Help anybody? All right. Okay. He was 23 years old when he would do something that would change the course of history. Yet he's relatively unknown, obviously, in world history. Now there's two statues of him on this planet. There are two statues. This is one of the two statues of Rodrigo. Let me give you another clue. Maybe this will clue you in here. The famous thing that he did... He did on October 12th of 1492. Aha. Started to hear some words. Okay. We only have two words that he ever uttered, recorded. Okay, two words. Actually, it's one word said twice. He said, Tierra, Tierra. You know what that it means? Land, land. He sailed on a ship called the Pinta. Okay, uh, which was part of a three-vessel convoy. You know the names of the other two ships, right, kids? The Nina and the Santa Maria, right? He was the very first person on Columbus's voyage at 2 o'clock in the morning, around 2 o'clock in the morning, to spot land. He was up there in his crow's nest, and he began to spot the white, sandy beaches of what is present-day um, Bahamas, an island called by the locals Guanahani, and it would later be labeled or named by Christopher Columbus as San Salvador. Okay, the voyage okay, that he was on was, of course, the famous trip that Columbus took across the Atlantic, which resulted in the discovery of the New World. And this was the man who that night was watching and waiting and staring out into the darkness. And he's the one who saw the land. He's the one that yelled out those words that would forever change history. You see, this voyage had experienced a lot of hardships, if you know the story of Columbus's crossing of the Atlantic. They had, the crew, including the, the, um, the including Columbus himself, had lost almost all hope. Matter of fact, the crew was near mutiny, and Columbus had promised that they would turn back if they didn't spot land in three days. He said, okay, we're turning back, we'll go home if we don't spot land in three days. And this was Okay, the morning of the third day. That third day was coming quickly. Okay, a great promise had been, a great reward had been promised to whoever spotted the land. So money and, 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 and uh, great reward was promised to, to uh, Rodrigo, although he never really received it, by the way. He got cheated out of it by Columbus himself. Um, but they were, they were, there was great anticipation in the air because even though this was the day that they were going to turn around, the previous day they had begun to see signs that land was near. Some, maybe some tree limbs and, and wood in the water, certain types of birds flying that, that wouldn't normally be that far out into the ocean. So there were signs that they were getting close to the land. So there was great anticipation in the air because these signs were pointing to the fact that, that the land was near. So Rodrigo on that night was up in that crow's nest and he was watching and he was waiting And he was watching, and he was waiting, and he was watching, and he was waiting. And today, in our text today, we read of another historical account, another man's job who was, another man whose job was to watch and wait. Watch and wait. He, too, is an oft-forgotten figure in uh, redemptive history. He, too, was part of a people who were nearing despair, a people who were losing their hope. But he too was living in a moment in history when the air was thick with great anticipation because there were signs that the Messiah was near. And this man, whose name is Simeon, had been promised by God that he would see the Lord's Messiah before he died. So he watched 
And so he waited. And so he watched. And so he waited. And one day the Spirit stirred up his heart. There's a strong emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit in today's text. The Spirit stirred up his heart in a fresh and an unusual way. And the Spirit led him into the temple. And there as he walks into the temple, he sees a teenage bride and her husband walking into the temple to observe the rituals associated with ceremonial cleansing that God's law had prescribed for the Jewish people. So in they walk with this small 40-day-old baby in their arms. And, and led by the Spirit, I can only imagine that led by the Spirit, he, he walks over to this couple. Perhaps they were taken aback a little bit. I don't know if you've had that experience where you've got a baby and then strangers just kind of walk up and want to look at and touch your baby. And maybe that's how they felt. I don't know. But this man, this older man, walks over to them as they walk into the temple. And he asks to take the child into his arms. And after all the other extraordinary events that had surrounded the birth of this promised child, perhaps this was no less strange than anything else, so they they hand this child over to Simeon. Young hands handing over this promised child to these old withered hands. And I can only imagine that Simeon smiled brightly and began to laugh as he lifted up a glorious prayer of praise to God the Father. Lord... Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. I always think this picture is usually associated with Christmas. You see it on Christmas cards and stuff. But I think it's a perfect picture of of Simeon. Bring up the next picture for me Noah because it's not moving up here. There, I can imagine that's the expression he had on his face. Just this overwhelming joy as he held this baby. And his eyes were there seeing and savoring the Christ child. For my eyes have seen your salvation. I wonder if we come into God's house with the sort of anticipation that we need to have. The sort of anticipation and excitement and eager waiting to see what God is going to do today. Our eager desire to lay our eyes upon Christ in a new way. I don't think we come into God's church like that. I think we need to be stirred up into a Simeon type of passion. We need to have the same exuberance as Rodrigo de Tirana. Not saying, tierra, tierra, but saying, Cristo, Cristo. Christ, Christ. Oh, how we need to see and savor Christ. That's the whole purpose of this series, is to stir us up as we see and savor Christ. I want us to be like Simeon. I want that to be us, joy overflowing as we see and savor Christ. We come to today's text, and it's the fifth and final song that Luke records in Luke chapters 1 and 2. It's the song of Simeon. And in this song, like the others we've looked at, there's some great truths about Jesus being proclaimed. Now some of this may seem a bit repetitive. The songs are very similar that these these people, all five of these people sing in the book of Luke. But uh, these are themes that Luke is developing. These are themes that the Holy Spirit is developing. And if Luke felt compelled to repeat them, and the Holy Spirit felt compelled or the Holy Spirit chose to inspire these words, not only in those who are singing these songs, but in Luke choosing to write these down, then I say we keep preaching them and we keep repeating them and we keep observing them. But before we get to looking at what Simeon sings about Jesus and what we see and savor about Christ in this text, I do want to look at the other characters in the story real briefly. First, I'll kind of look at them in pairs, Simeon and Anna, and then we'll look at Mary and Joseph again. So there's these two elderly saints, Simeon and Anna, who are waiting for the Messiah. And then there's these, these two young newlyweds used of God to bring the Messiah into the world. It's a beautiful contrast here. A faithful waiting on God to keep his promises and the joyful fulfillment as God's promises are kept in the birth of Christ. So let's look at Simeon and Anna real quick here this morning. We've already talked a little bit about Simeon here as I, as I gave the introduction to the message. But there's another person in the story. It's an 84-year-old prophetess named Anna. Um, the word that jumps off the pages of this text as we look at both Simeon and Anna 
is the word waiting. They were waiting. Two different saints, one man, one woman, both waiting. So we read of Simeon in verse 25 that there was a devout man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout. And it says this. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's the key phrase right there. Waiting for the consolation of Israel. Then we read about Anna in verse 36. There was a prophetess Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from, from when she was a virgin. Now, if she, like Mary, was about 13, 14 when she was married, then um, apparently her husband died in her early 20s. It says in verse 37, And then she lived as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who were, and here's the key phrase again, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. These two phrases are almost, they're identical in their construction. They're parallel. There's, there's a waiting for the consolation of Israel, and there's a waiting for the redemption of Israel. He was waiting for the consolation, and we can assume because she's speaking to the others who are waiting for the redemption, that she too was waiting for the redemption of Israel. So we're going to dig into these two descriptors here in a little bit above Jesus as the consolation and as the redemption of Israel and Jerusalem, respectively. But as we look at these two elderly saints, we see Two faithful, patient, trusting people who were steadfast in their commitment to God. They had a rock-solid belief that God would keep His Word. Part of the reason I chose some of the songs we sang today, talking about God's faithfulness and His never-ending love and how He never changes, is that we have to have a rock-solid belief in what the Scripture teaches us about those things. God had spoken directly to Simeon that he would see the Messiah... And surely God had also spoken directly to Anna by her continual relentless praying and fasting decade after decade as she demonstrated her belief in God's word that he heard her prayers along with the prayers of everyone who waited for the promised one to come. The prayers of faith, the prayers of belief that God would keep all the promises he had made to Israel. And so there's two points of application really real quickly for us this morning in regards to just looking at how these saints lived in anticipation Number one is that we need to regain, I believe the church today needs to regain the spiritual discipline of waiting. Of waiting. There is much gain in being quiet before the Lord and simply waiting for Him to do what He says He will do. Psalm 37, 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. David tells us that. And then the David tells us the Lord speaks directly in Psalm 46, 10 when He says, Be still and know that I am God. God's people have always been awaiting people, haven't they? It shouldn't surprise us that we are still awaiting people. As Simeon awaited the first arrival of Christ, so we wait for the second coming of Christ. We are awaiting people, and we need to regain the spiritual discipline of learning to wait on the Lord. Just as Abraham waited. In fact, he had to wait to the point where it seemed that God wasn't going to be able to keep his promise anymore, but God supernaturally did it. Moses had to wait. Joseph had to wait. There's plenty of text and scripture we could go to where we see that God is a God who wants his people to develop the spiritual discipline of waiting. And the second thing I see in this section here this morning that just jumps out to me is that is, is the idea and the truth that God always keeps a remnant. He always has a remnant. God always has preserved a remnant of faithful people throughout redemptive history. In the Old Testament, during the darkest days of Israel, he kept a remnant. There were those who never strayed. There were those who kept their eyes open, who kept waiting, who kept trusting, who kept um, entrusting themselves to the Lord. And even in the New Testament, we see the same thing, this remnant being kept. And then throughout church history, same thing. Even during the darkest days of the church, God has preserved a remnant. And so that should be an encouragement to us today when we get frustrated and we see uh, difficulties in the American church in particular, and we get... We struggle with what's happening in America. We can be confident that God has not abandoned his people. He will always preserve a remnant. In contrasting the elderly saints here are Joseph and Mary. Mary probably, as I mentioned in the sermon a few weeks ago, is probably between 13 and 15. 
Joseph was probably no older than his very early 20s. Okay, and we see some wonderful faithfulness from this couple as well. We see their piety despite their poverty. We know they're poor because of the type of sacrifice that they bring. Okay, the, the Old Testament prescribed this, this purification sacrifice that was to be, to be carried out 40 days after the baby was born for the mother. And if you couldn't afford the lamb, then you, you, would, you would buy the things that Joseph and Mary bought here. The, the turtle dove, the pigeon, and, and that was for the poor people. So we know they're poor. And we see their obedience to name the child Jesus as God had told them to. We see their speechless marveling at what God was doing. We see their adherence to God's law. And I'm going to go a lot more into that here in a second. But Joseph and Mary, throughout these accounts of Jesus' birth, are the model of faith in God, despite some very confusing and frightening and overwhelming events that were unfolding. We never see them flinch in their obedience or trust in God. Now, the person I really want us to see, though, in today's text is the baby. Okay, the baby. I want us to see and savor Christ. The Christ, the promised one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the King. So I have one question to sort of guide us through the remainder of the message today. And so I'll bring that up. And the question is this, what do we see when we see Jesus? Simeon sees this baby as the baby comes in. Anna sees this baby. What did Simeon see? What did Anna see? What should we see? Do we see the Jesus that the world sees today? Or do we see the Jesus that the scriptures reveal? What do we see? And the first thing from this text is, Number one in your notes there is that, go ahead and bring it up, buddy. We see Jesus, the perfect law keeper. We see Jesus, the perfect law keeper. There is a definite focus that Luke is developing here in these verses on the law. Despite the fact that he's writing to a Gentile believer named Theophilus, he goes out of his way to hone in on the keeping of the Mosaic law, the Jewish law in this text. We have the law here mentioned five times in the text. Five times he mentions the law of the Lord. So let's go to Luke 2, verse, starting in verse 21. It says, At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, and that was required by law, okay, it said he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 22, And when the time came for their purification... According to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. So it's almost to the point that Luke is getting kind of redundant here. He continues, Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Okay, this law, by the way, is from Leviticus chapter 12, if you want to go read it there. And then we read later on in verse 27, the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. And then in verse 39, it says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Luke's making a point here. He says the law of the Lord, the law of Moses, the law of God. He just keeps going, going, going. It's almost to the point that you're like, okay, Luke, I'm getting your point here. He just kind of is redundant here about this law. And then he goes out of his way at the, in verse 39 to say that everything according to the law of the Lord was performed. Everything is an important word here. Luke is showing us here that the law was being perfectly kept in the person of Jesus Christ. In this case, even when he himself in his humanity was incapable, incapable of keeping it himself, he had his parents Carrying out the requirements of the law. Jesus fulfilled all the law of God, the Torah of God, the instruction of God. And the law was ultimately fulfilled in him. Jesus was the divine law keeper and in him the law found all its fulfillment. Well, why is that important? Why on earth is that important? Because, I'll tell you why it's important. It's important because Jesus' obedience to the law, both actively and passively both in his obeying the precepts of the law and in his being punished for the breaking of the law, were done for our sake. It's the basis of our salvation. He fulfilled the law completely for us. Without Christ, we stand condemned under the law. But in Christ, we stand forgiven. 
the punishment for breaking of the law taken by Christ for us and the right standing before God of a perfect law keeper accomplished for us by Christ. All given by grace, received by faith. Luke is reminding us here and he will continue to do so throughout his gospel that Jesus is the one who perfectly kept God's law. A few texts come to mind to just reinforce this point. Romans 8, 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This whole keeping of the law is part of what Christ was accomplishing when he identifies with us, Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. This is, one of the, this is the reason Jesus was baptized. In, in Matthew chapter 3, 15, when, when Jesus comes to be baptized, did Jesus have any sin to repent of? Was John the Baptist there? No, John the Baptist knew that. He said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't need to baptize you. I need it to be flipped. You need to baptize me. And what did Jesus say to him? He says this in Matthew 3, 15, Jesus answered, Let it be so now, for this is fitting, for it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why was it fitting for Jesus to fulfill all righteousness? Because he was standing in our place. He was fulfilling every moral law. Every ceremonial law, every law there was to keep of God's law, Jesus kept perfectly. I've heard that passage in Matthew chapter 3, 15 about Jesus being baptized, preached numerous times as a good moral example. Because it is a little baffling. Why does Jesus do this? And some people conclude, well, he's just setting a good example for us to follow. A lot of times people will look at the cross alone in regards to what Jesus did in our place and then look at the rest of his life as some sort of moral example for us to follow. That's wrong, my friends. Certainly Jesus' morality must be our highest example, but it's an example we cannot attain to because we're lawbreakers. And the reason he lived such a morally perfect life was to accomplish something on our behalf. Namely, the keeping of the entire law on behalf of his people because we can't do it. So yes, Jesus is a great moral example. But he's much more than a great moral example. He is the keeper of the law on our behalf. What he did wasn't just die on the cross and rise again on our behalf. His whole life was done on our behalf. From the moment he was born, he was already working on behalf of his people. It didn't just happen at Calvary. His whole life was a payment for our sin, was a keeping of righteousness. Every bit of it. So don't just look to the cross and say, okay, there's what Jesus did for us. And now I'm going to look to the rest of his life and say, okay, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? No, no, no. What did Jesus fully and completely and finally accomplish on your behalf? That's the question. And in light of that, you live differently. That's why he came as a baby to fully identify with us. So let's say someone in here is running a marathon race and, and they can't run it. They're hurt or whatever. And I say, you know what? I'm going to stand in your place. I'm going to run this marathon for you. And I decide, you know what? That's an awful long race. So I'm just going to jump in at mile 20. And at mile 20, I'll finish the race for you, buddy. Jesus didn't just come as some adult at 30, start a ministry, and then f die on the cross and all of that. And He came as a baby because even the law had to be kept for, for babies as well. And he came as a baby to fully identify with his people. What do you see when you look at this baby Jesus being brought into the temple? Do you see a, a Christmas card scene like the picture I put up earlier? That's fine. That's okay. That's good. 
But do you see a perfect child, a perfect man, keeping the law perfectly, himself fulfilling and the fulfillment of all the law on our behalf? Do you see that? See it. Savor it. Meditate upon it. And let us also meditate on the second thing that we see in this text. We see Jesus, the comforting rescuer. The comforting rescuer. I want to draw our minds back to the two things that Simeon and Anna were waiting for. Since Luke here uses identical language for both of these phrases, we can assume that there's a parallelism going on here. There's a sort of a synonymous nature to these two things. Simeon was waiting for the constellation of Israel, and Anna went around and talked about Jesus to everyone who was waiting for the redemption of Israel. Consolation, that word means comfort or encouragement. So that's why I said comforting, rescuer. It's the word used by, uh, of Barnabas when it says he is the, the son of encouragement. Same word. It's the word used of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is called our comforter. The Holy Spirit was really the second comforter who came. First came the Son, and that's why Jesus said in John 14, 6, I will ask the Father and he will give you another comforter. In the ESV it says helper, but it's the same word, parakletos. I will send you another helper. I will send you another comforter to be with you. The Messiah was the first promised parakletos. This is the fulfillment of various passages in the Old Testament regarding the Messiah, particularly texts in Isaiah. And Anna calls him the redemption Isaiah also predicted all throughout the book of Isaiah in various places that the Messiah would be our Redeemer. And so it's through the Messiah that would come our rescue, our redemption. He would be the rescuer, the one who would ransom us from our enemies. We see the comforting and redeeming roles of the Messiah all throughout the book of Isaiah. So, so if you've got your concordance or if you've got a concordance on a computer, go type in comfort or comforter or comforting and any, any various form of the word comfort and do a search and see how much it pops up in Isaiah or redemption or redeemer or redeemed and see how much it pops up and you'll just see all over Isaiah passages like Isaiah 52 9 it says for the Lord has comforted his people he has redeemed Jerusalem that text in Isaiah right there is almost identical to what we just read for he has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem Surely Luke thought back to those texts as he records these words that Simeon and Anna were speaking. So Jesus, this baby, was the comforting rescuer of Israel, of God's people. But surely the majority of the Jews understood this to mean a comfort and consolation given to them as they would be rescued and redeemed from the domination of the Romans. And as we've said before, and we don't have to go too much into it more today... This is why so many of the Jews missed their Messiah. They were looking for a lesser type of deliverance. They were looking for a comfort that would result from a military rescue from an oppressive earthly foe. But God was sending a greater deliverance. I believe that Anna and Simeon saw a comfort resulting from a spiritual rescue from, from an oppressive spiritual foe, the great foe himself, that slithery serpent that first appeared in the garden. For all the Old Testament has promised a child would come who would be the serpent slayer. And I think Simeon and Anna, they see it. The serpent slayer has arrived on the scene. And that's what they're most comforted about. That's what they know they're being rescued from. This child was the one. And Anna and Simeon saw it. And we need to see it too. He is the one who comforts you and rescues you from your own sin. And from Satan. And from the penalty of sin, which is the wrath of God. So, how do I know that though? Well, I want to look a little bit here at Simeon's song. Simeon sings a happy song of prayerful praise. So first we have Simeon's happy song of prayerful praise. Luke 2, verse 20, 29. He says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory for glory to your people, Israel. And as he mentions salvation, our minds are immediately drawn back to Zechariah's song in chapter 1, verse 77. When Zechariah talks about the Messiah would give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. 
And this type of salvation was what Isaiah had prophesied about regarding the Comforter. Let's look at another prophecy from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. Now the next part of this prophetic word from Isaiah is Hebrew parallelism. Meaning the first line is identical or is synonymous to the second line. Okay, so speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. What type of warfare is Isaiah talking about? You see, the the Jews who were looking for a military conqueror would have read the first part of that. Her warfare has ended and said, yes, finally, we got someone here to kick these Romans out. But those who were paying careful attention to what God was accomplishing throughout redemptive history would have seen the second line. The parallel line, which says that her iniquity is pardoned. Because God's people are in a much greater warfare. And it's not with some political, oppressive foe. It's with our own sin. That is the war that must be fought and overcome and defeated. That is the enemy, I should say, that needs to be overcome and defeated. The comfort and rescue was the comfort... And rescue from sin. It was the Israel of God, the true Israel of God, those united to Christ by faith, being redeemed and rescued from their own sin, which involves the Gentiles as well. It says here that this baby was to be a light of revelation to the Gentiles who would be grafted into the Israel of God, the people of God. So, what do you see this morning? Okay, what do you see this little child in this little child who's being held in the arms of Simeon? Do you see a perfect law keeper? Do you see the one, the only one who can bring your soul comfort by rescuing you you from your sin? And it's a rescue that comes at a terrible and painful cost. This baby, this cute little baby here in Simeon's arm would one day be brutally executed for the sins of his people. That's why Simeon's happy song of prayerful praise gives way to Simeon's sad word of painful prophecy. I'm actually acting like a Baptist preacher today. Got me some alliteration going. His happy song of prayerful praise all of a sudden becomes a sad prophecy that he's going to give to Mary and Joseph. A sad word of painful prophecy. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall And the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your soul also. So that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. It will only be through the opposition and the piercing. That this comfort and rescue would come. You see Jesus is more than just a the comforter and the rescuer. He is the comfort and the rescue. Simeon says that he is the consolation. Not the consoler. He is the consolation. Anna says that he is the redemption. Not just the redeemer, but he is the redemption. It is his life that will be our comfort and our rescue. It is his death that secures our comfort and our rescue. He is the just and the justifier. He is the rescue and the rescuer. He is the comfort and the comforter. The cross is where the final keeping of the law is brought to bear as the penal element of God's law is poured out upon perfect innocence. And in in that death, he bore the sins of many and secured the comfort of his people. And it is only through faith in what Christ accomplished on the cross that this that, that we or, or any other person throughout all of history can find any sort of comfort and rescue. And it is through this accomplishment on the cross that this baby is the consolation, the comfort, and he is the redemption. He is the rescue. There's no other way. If you put all your hope in Christ alone this morning, in what he accomplished on the cross, then this baby is, if you don't put all your hope, I should say, in Christ alone this morning, then this baby is not a comfort and a rescue for you. Christmas is not a comforting thing if you've not placed your hope in Christ alone. It should be a terrifying thing. For according to Simeon, he's been appointed for the rise of some, those of faith, 
and the fall of some, those who reject the Son, those on whom the wrath of God remains. So finally today, I want us to see one last thing. The third point of today's message is that we see Jesus, the great divider. This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Jesus was surely a cute little baby, but he's much more than that. He's the only hope and the only way of salvation. And if we accept him, we live and continue to live, united with him in the presence of God forever. But if we reject him, we are certain to die and continue to die, separated from him and cast out of the presence of God forever. Jesus is the great divider, Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. Wait a second. Didn't the angels sing peace on earth just last week? And if you were listening to Deemer's sermon, you would have heard that that peace is not for the whole world. That peace is for the redeemed. And Jesus says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is the great divider. There are two ways to live. And this is not the popular Jesus of our day. The best friend Jesus, the life coach on a cross Jesus that so many believe in today without any need of sacrifice, without any need of surrender, without any need of, 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 of rejecting your own sin and, and, and repenting and turning to Christ, without any need for any of that, you have a life coach on a cross which is a great moral example for you. That is not the Jesus of Scripture. The Jesus of Scripture says you believe in him by faith alone or you die and perish in hell forever. Two ways to live. We don't like to think of the cute baby in the manger as the great divider. But Simeon said it. He's appointed for the rise of many and the fall of many. Oh yes, Jesus was and is the perfection of inclusive love. For his salvation is offered to all men. But not all men will come. And those who don't will be justly condemned. We must decide if we are willing to follow Jesus. It's not a popular message today. Universalistic pluralism rules the dark night we live in today. And the exclusive message of Christ is a beacon of light showing the way, the truth, and the life. Are we bold enough and brave enough to share it? I'm stunned just in my lifetime, really, I've only been back in the United States since the year 1990. Before that, my previous half of my life was overseas. Since 1990, I know that's a long time ago now. It doesn't feel like it. But in that 22 years or so, how far our nation has wandered into that darkness of universalism and pluralism and every man doing whatever feels right to himself. And we just go there, and we go there, and we go there. And every step we take into that darkness, this message becomes so unpopular. And we get new labels. I wasn't called a bigot in 1990, but now that label is freely offered to anyone who believes this. Narrow-minded, closed-minded. And so we have to decide, are we going to stand with Jesus? He is the great divider. And those who are ashamed of him, he will be ashamed of them the last day. Are we going to take up our cross and follow him? Are we going to be willing to have that bad relationship with our parents or children? That's a tough text to read. Dividing of daughter and mother. Now, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, that one's pretty easy to understand. But the other ones, father, son, mother, daughter. Whoa. 
Are you willing that that relationship might be terribly strained if you embrace the exclusive claims of Christ? That's what we face. And in the end, Jesus will lay bare every heart. Every heart will be made, made, made to lay bare before him. And there will be stony hearts of, of, of rebellion that justly receive the condemnation. And there will be new, fresh, regenerated hearts that not of anything they did on their own, but only because God brought about new life and new birth, there will be new hearts that go to live with him forever. That's the gospel. What do you see when you see Jesus? If you see what Simeon saw, that Jesus is the rescuer and the comforter of those who have come to him by faith and put all their hope in him and have, re have repented of their sin, then you rejoice like Simeon, like in that picture we saw earlier. And now we wait again. You wait like Simeon and you watch and you wait and you watch and you wait and you watch for he's coming back again. And one day, like Rodrigo de Tirana, we will shout, He's here! He's here! So stay in that spiritual crow's nest and keep watching and keep standing and keep standing for a message that becomes increasingly unpopular in the midnight days that we walk through as a nation. Watch and wait for our Redeemer and our Comforter will return. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. So I close with this hymn written by Charles Wesley. Written based upon this very text. A song that sometimes we sing during the Advent season. Come thou long expected Jesus. Born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever, now thy glorious kingdom bring. Be thine own eternal, by thy own eternal spirit, Rule in all our hearts alone, and by thy all-sufficient merit, raise us up to thy glorious throne. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, greatly hallowed, exalted, and magnificent is your name. Oh, our Father, we pray that your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth. In our church. In our city. In our homes in our private, individual lives. Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We desire to be obedient like we will one day be in heaven. Oh Lord, give us this day all we need. This day. Keep us from regret of the past days and anxiety over the future days. But this day, give us what we need, Lord. Give us our daily bread. Our daily bread. And help us to be like Simeon and Anna who live daily waiting. And don't let us fret over when our timeline for our life will come into being. Our plans and our calendars and our foolish distractions help us to rest in you today 
and trust in what you give us today. Oh, and God, forgive us our debts. Oh, we are such debtors. Debtors. And we wander back to that stinky, sin-ridden jail cell that we've been set free from. And we like to sit down in it and remember the old days. Oh God, forgive us. Forgive us of our debts. As we also, imaging you, forgive those who are indebted to us. Oh God, don't let us think that we can somehow be walking around in the freedom of walking closely to you in the forgiveness of sins as 1 John 1, 9 speaks of. If we think that somehow we can harbor ill will against our brothers and sisters. Oh, how foolish it is to think that. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Oh, and Lord, lead us not into temptation. Oh God, that's where we walk. Like a foolish dog on a leash that wants to return to his vomit. Oh God, pull us away. Don't let us go there. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Deliver us. You are our comfort. You are our rescuer. You, weren't, you didn't just deliver us on the cross once and for all. Yes, that was accomplished. But daily, Lord, you are our deliverer. Deliver us from evil. Oh, the serpent. The serpent. Oh, he's trying his hardest to get us to fall. But Lord, if we truly belong to you, we are being held firm in your hand. And the serpent is held firm under your heel. Glory be to you forever. All power, all glory, all the kingdom, all the majesty belong to you. Grant us the grace to see and savor Jesus daily. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen.